Hyena Culture is a space aimed to give access to underrepresented groups in Seattle performing arts. This event space for small businesses provides a unique experience through workshops and classes. For more information, visit hyenaculture.com. Four Culture is one of the biggest organizations providing funding for cultural work that keeps King County vibrant. For more information, visit fourculture.org. What's up, everybody? Welcome to season three of the No Blueprint Podcast. I'm your host, Dominique Meeks. You could have been anywhere in the world, but you're here with us, and we appreciate that. We're more than honored to bring you our live recording from our August conversation with artist, curator, filmmaker, and activist, Tracy Rector. We hope you enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm grateful that we are gathering here this evening on Duwamish territory. And it always feels special to be in this area. It's an area that I grew to love as a kid, you know, taking family trips down along the waterfront. And for some reason, there has always just been this pull, and this pull to understand space, especially in Pioneer Square. Again, my name's Tracy Rector, and I don't know how to introduce myself exactly. I'm a mother, a daughter, a wife, and I'm a filmmaker and curator and activist. And this morning, I I was humbled to read about the passing of Ms. Toni Morrison. And it really brought me back to high school and, and the struggles that I experienced in high school, you know, just struggling to survive, basically. And choosing to read The Bluest Die was a way for me to kind of exercise some of those struggles that I grew up with. And recognizing today that now she's an ancestor and she's an ancestor that we get a draw upon from her experiences and her wisdom in a different way from when she was with us you know, on Earth. And it just really made me think about my purpose because in high school, I became very committed to fighting racism because of her words, thinking about um, domestic violence because of her stories, and really understand that the system's not just. And here we are today, I'm still fighting those fights, but in different ways and with different compassion, but also with a new kind of fierceness. And I don't know, that's just who I am today and that's always evolving and that's always changing, but maybe at the core there's always this essence of being an advocate for the people and for community. I did just come back from the Sundance Producers Summit and it was amazing. And it's incredible to be invited to one of those types of tables. The end note was very interesting though. Someone came up to me and he said, you know, I kept looking at you the whole time you're here and I just couldn't figure out why you were here because you don't seem like you possess the qualities of a successful producer. Mm. How did you take that? He paused and he realized what he said. And I said, wow, that's a very colonized mentality. And he said, but the workshop by Heather Ray, she talked about what real power is. 
And he said, I realize that you're one of those people because you have an interesting energy about you when you walk in the room. You're not like the rest of us. And again, I was confused. And, and this, is, this is something I've heard my entire life. You're not one of us. You don't belong. So I sit and I, I understand how to pause and sit and hold with grace this space that's not fair and is unjust and is patriarchal. But he said, you know, something I learned is that real power is about being connected to the earth and to humanity. And it's not about what we all strive for as producers. And of course, he's including everybody and we all, except for me. You know, we all strive for that, that ego, that satisfaction, that money of creating these stories, but creating these stories with that capitalist mentality. And he's like, you're not about that. You're about something different, and that's real freedom. Hmm. So it was a sideways kind of, can we swear? Yeah. This is it. It was a sideways pretty fucked up compliment. Hmm. <laughs> So I just got on my bus and I resolved, I resolved to hold in my mind that quote by Audre Lorde that says, the master's tools will not dismantle the master's house. And it just further, that comment just furthered my conviction to building new systems. And that's all I've done with Longhouse Media mm -hmm. is through failure and through successes, just yeah. built new systems. And especially for indigenous peoples, you know, we, and for me as a mixed race person, we don't always have the luxury of walking that path of the systems that have been built. And actually, I don't see it as a luxury. I see those as chains that bind people. And all weekend I heard these producers talking about the industry's changing, we're not gonna survive. But you know what? I didn't feel affected by that because I've been walking this path with Longhouse Media of creating our own system. Absolutely. Making media for the people by the people. Mm -hmm. Not caring about selling stories, making money off of stories, mm -hmm. telling stories that are authentic and in collaboration and in community. Mm -hmm. And I think that has cushioned me in a way that maybe once felt really tough, but now I feel incredibly privileged. And he was right. There is a certain kind of freedom mm -hmm. that I have because I don't really care about selling stuff. I don't really care about power in that way. Those are tools. Those right. are certainly tools, but long story. <laughs> but I, I want to create new systems, and yes. I'm especially especially um, feeling some power around that these days. And I want to go back to when did you find out that you wanted to be a storyteller? Hmm. Well, I grew up in a, um, a pretty disjointed, pretty dysfunctional home, and I was a latchkey kid, and I watched a ton of TV. <laughs> And I especially loved Wonder Woman and Star Trek. And I remember I was in kindergarten and we had show and tell. And 
I got out this foil and I made myself Wonder Woman bracelets and the lasso and the crown. And I brought that into my class and it was confusing for them and yeah. I thought they did a great job. Yeah, they didn't. They, they didn't understand. Wonder they didn't Woman? understand. What? No, but what I knew at that moment is I was trying to create a story for myself, and I saw the power in this this woman, mm. this woman, you know, fighting the Nazis, <laughs> being herself, right. being covert, and having this fantasy life in many ways. So right. you know what I I remember living in this fantasy world a lot. And I don't know if I knew then that I was a storyteller, but I knew I knew that there was a different way to mm-hmm. share my vision than to have a voice. Mm. Yeah. That's true. That's true. And did you did you have people around you that didn't take the traditional nine to five path that inspired you to be a creative well, I guess, you know, it's like I started in storytelling. So I used to be a domestic violence worker. Mm. And that's really, uh, it's really challenging, especially for someone in their 20s. And there is a point where I just, we had some, you know, women who were murdered by their abusers. Wow. And we had a few break-ins into our shelter. And it just broke me. It broke me spiritually, emotionally, um, psychologically. And I just realized I had to do something different. That I wasn't, I was too sensitive of a person to be on the front lines like that. That's important work. And I tried my best, but in my 20s, I just was not equipped Mm -hmm. to do it for six years. And in that moment, I, I tried to figure out what else can I do. My neighbor, she ran an herb shop, an apothecary called Dandelion, and she remembers me. I don't remember this. I guess I like stomped up to her house. I was in like combat boots. I was in ripped up like leggings or pajamas and a bustier, and my hair was in pigtails. I don't even remember this. I was like, where, where, where was this? <laughs> Here in Seattle. Okay. All right. <laughs> I don't know. I was just probably in that fantasy space. And it's almost like I dressed up like a superhero. I don't know. But I walked over there as like, can you help me? And I need a job and I can't do this anymore. Mm. And so she let me come work at Dandelion. <laughs> and it was an amazing experience to just be in contact with medicine in that way and to become more in touch with the spirit world to think about healing and it was what i needed to kind of exercise all of the trauma for being in the shelter Mm. and while i was at dandelion and just being part of this incredible community i decided that i wanted to commit myself to practicing medicine traditional medicine so i went to the evergreen state college Mm -hmm. and i got hooked up with the skokomish Nation, and I started working in the garden of Bruce Miller. And at that time, PBS came to do a story about him. And um, he said, 
only if you hire a native intern because our people need to tell our own stories. Mm. And so he put me on that project and I was like, I know nothing about media. I know nothing about film. What? He's like, but you, you, you've talked about working with young people. You talked about working with people who've fallen through the cracks. And this is a perfect way to reach across that divide. And um, so I said yes. And that was 17 years ago. Um, wow. My first project was called Teachings of the Tree People. And I just kind of kept going on this path. It's been amazing. Wow. And that's wow. how I came to <laughs> storytelling in this way, it was that's really amazing. through herbal medicine. That's amazing. So then, and then, so you finish at Evergreen, you go back to do a master's in education? Mm-hmm. So during this time period, I had two young boys. I thought if I stopped at Evergreen with my undergrad, because see, I went back to school late. I, when I was younger, I didn't really have the self-confidence to be in school. I didn't think I could do it. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the healing work that being at Dandelion, it helped me to have um, enough self-confidence to realize that I could do it. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, but I was also having kids at the same time. And um, I'm a person who likes challenges. Mm-hmm. And so I was just trying to do it all at once. And I knew if I stopped, if I didn't just go straight into getting my master's, that I probably wouldn't go back because it's just how life is, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I was on a roll, I decided to go to um, the Muckleshoot Reservation. They had a program there for philosophy of native education Mm -hmm. and a teacher prep program. So I went there and that's when I started Longhouse Media. That was my thesis project. Say more. Yeah. (laughs) How so? (laughs) Say more about starting Longhouse Media. Like what was it in its infancy? And how did you take that idea and really continue to grow it? Mm -hmm. So I worked with a filmmaker named Annie Silverstein. And so together we just started building out this program. And we worked at the Swinomish Indian Reservation at Muckleshoot. And we brought the tools of media production to Native communities, to Native kids in after-school programs, in-school programs, during breaks. Uh, Our philosophy being that so often these programs that are in big cities, they expect that POC communities and young people come into the cities, come outside of their communities to create work or to experience new ways of being or learn new tools. And so our commitment commitment was to go out into the world and I think I put 200,000 miles on my car in four years (laughs) just like driving from res to res Um, it was amazing it was an amazing generative time we just worked 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 our asses off and we made a lot of mistakes we made a ton of mistakes but we had a lot of successes and through that whole process, we realized that we ourselves, as filmmakers, were becoming better filmmakers because we were working with young people who had just incredible ideas. Right. And so it was definitely an exchange. 
the work that we did. And I would say for the first 10 years of Longhouse Media, it um, was really primarily focused on working with young people and that exchange of energy and knowledge that happens in that way. Yeah, that's so awesome. Because I was, I was like, so when did you start working with young people? And it's like, from the beginning. Yeah. That's super cool. Who were some of your first supporters? Yeah, so we had a lot of supporters. Sherman Alexi was um, one of our founding board members. Wow. Mostly women, I would say. Mm -hmm. Lots of women, lots yes. of Native women. Women who've been just holding up the sky for years Absolutely. and they're still holding up the sky. Absolutely. Um, lots of guidance, lots of mentorship. And yeah, I just, it's, you know, we've worked with over 3,000 youth and in over 51 different tribal communities. And we always say it's not about us, it's really about the process mm -hmm. and the people in the communities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you would tell yourself, what is it, 17? You said 17 years ago you started this? Mm -hmm. What would you tell yourself if you could talk to yourself from 17 years ago? I don't know, part of me wants to say, you know, pace yourself, drink more water, get more sleep, <laughs> <laughs> all the basics. And I remember my landlord at the time was Pramila Jayapal, who wow. heads up the most amazing landlord. She walks her talk and is so incredibly compassionate. Yeah. And I have to say that we would have been on the streets if it wasn't for that woman and just working with us. Um, because I wasn't making much money and raising a family of four with air. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and she just really, yeah, Pramila Jayapal, I'm just internally, like eternally grateful for everything. Um, but she also said, I just want to let you know that as an executive director and the work that you're doing, People will say, you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. She's like, that's a lie. There's never going to be a light at the <laughs> end of the tunnel. Keep working. Yeah, just, and and I appreciated that because because I was wide, you know, eyes wide open, just like, all right, this work is hard, mm -hmm. and it's just going to require me to give everything. So I don't know, part of me wants to be able to say, you know, be more gentle on yourself, take care, you know, better care of yourself and all of that. But then I'm here today because... I made all those sacrifices, so mm -hmm. so I don't know. It's a really interesting question. Yeah. I think too, just as a POC woman and as a quiet person, I've always been one to work way harder than expected mm -hmm. because I know that people would always, like that guy at Sundance, would always see me as less than. Mm -hmm. So there's always been this way that I've just worked, worked, worked to prove myself, to get the work done, to work on behalf of community too, because it's not just about me, it's my work reflects in this bigger picture and this bigger, like this bigger ecosystem of indigenous filmmakers and POC filmmakers. So sure. that's an amazing question that I, don't, I really have an answer no. for, but I do know that today I'm trying to be much more mindful about self-care. Okay, similar question but totally not the same. I know that in working with as many youth as you've worked with, that mentorship is, is sort of built in. What are those lessons that you 
deliver to the youth that you work with? Well, one thing in this work is, I definitely knew from the beginning that I always tried to remind myself of, is that this is just, this work's about planting seeds. Mm -hmm. You may not ever see the fruits of those seeds, but it's about planting seeds. Mm -hmm. And um, Yahout, our show that was at King Street Station that just wrapped this weekend, mm -hmm. the young woman who's our leader in that project, Asia Tail, she was a student of mine in our youth making camp. Mm -hmm. And so, Thinking back about her, her teenager self, all gothed out and <laughs> not talking, that there was an element in those moments of planting seeds, and then the fruition is this freaking incredible mm. show, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the power that she exudes as a fierce native woman has just transformed so many people around her. Mm. Again, I feel like sometimes I just don't have answers, but sometimes you have to just do the work, one foot in front of the other. Mm -hmm. Have faith. And if you approach whatever you do with a good heart and good intentions and you know, just the right frame of mind that I think, especially with young people, they feel that. They feel the authenticity and that truth. Mm -hmm. And they can take that forward in their lives in a way that makes sense for them. For sure, for sure. And you you just threw me an alley-oop about the, arts, the new arts and culture space and the new exhibit. How did that come to fruition? And how did you decide who you were going to collaborate with. So again, Asia Tail, uh, about three years ago, she, uh, I was on the Sail Arts Commission, and she said, hey, I have this idea for this project. Would you be interested in doing it with me? And I said, yes. I guess that's one thing I've done a lot in my career is just say yes. <laughs> I'm learning to say no now, but yes has been awesome. <laughs> so I said yes to Asia, and she also brought on Sapreet Kolon, um, who she met at uh, Arts Retreat through Centrum. And the three of us uh, just came up with this idea and decided to figure it out with the city. It was not easy, um, but we decided to figure out and center indigenous philosophy and voices um, specifically guided by Vi Hilbert's story, um, Yahau. And knowing that sometimes you have to just proceed forward and do it. And that's how the work came about. Nice. And you said it just ended? It just ended. It just wrapped this weekend. Three year process wow. just wrapped and you know we wanted to you know it's over 250 native artists that we exhibited and we just wanted to approach the work differently we went out to communities we called people up people kept telling us you know it's never going to happen you're never going to do it you aren't going to get any submissions and we said well no it's because if you impose a western framework on reaching out to artists all those barriers are going to prevent them from feeling seen and heard and um, truly wanted and we wanted to do that in a different way in a more collaborative community driven way Absolutely. and um, so yeah it it kind of blew the city's mind yeah. um, I think in many ways they weren't sure if we were gonna actually pull it off yeah. 
And our opening day, I think we had 3,000 people show up opening yeah, day. Yeah. Super awesome. And it's, it's, again, it's all community. You know, it's just the three of us as curators. We, we were guides. We were guided to do the work, but it was really about doing the work with community. And the community showed up for one another. Super awesome. What did you, you said it was a three-year process. What were some of your personal takeaways um, in working on this project for as long as you have? Oh man, arts administration is not easy. Oh. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it was really hard. I mean, there is some beautiful aspects. We, when things really started heating up at the border last May, we realized that we absolutely had to do a spotlight on indigenous Latinx artists. And mm. so we did a three month um, specifically curated project at Vermilion Art Gallery in Napantla also in White Center. And we worked with community coordinator Jessica Ramirez um, to really do that outreach with community. And that felt so special. And just we knew we were doing, making the right choices, doing the right work because the community was showing up. And we were supporting Jessica and her choices and how to bring community together. The hard stuff though was really about maintaining safe space and really putting out into the world and having to work with artists in a way to acknowledge maybe their challenges, their personal challenges and how they may have harmed people mm -hmm. and letting them know that we were maintaining a safe space and they couldn't be part of the show if they were not committed to their own personal responsibilities around finding justice right. with others. That was hard. It was hard to have those conversations. It was hard to take people out of the show if we found out they had harmed people. Mm. We had to really think through, you know, what our responsibility is to, to community, but also just not throw away people who've made bad choices in life and how to negotiate that. And we weren't expecting that at all. It sounds super difficult, like super difficult conversations to have. Like where do you, how do you start and where do you start? Asking for help. We just, we asked a lot of elders for help, mentors for help. We talked to a couple indigenous lawyers. Mm. We, you know, we did not want to, again, impose a Western system of viewing people as criminals and viewing people who had hard pasts and just calling that good. We wanted to figure out, you know, how can we do this in a, a compassionate way, yet also hold space and maintain safety for mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was a surprise, you know, it's like, it's not all... It's not all rainbows. Right. It's um, there's a in terms of they call it field building or community organizing. There's just a lot of trauma and pain to also contend with in creating healing opportunities <laughs> in community space. Nice. You're a good interviewer, by the way. You know, I, I try. Yeah, I try. I try. A good listener. I just, I'm just I'm the youngest of three, and so I'm just a very curious person. I just have a lot of questions. I guess you've been you've been making films and documentaries for 17 years. What excites you at this point in your career? Well, today I started a new job. 
a full-time job. I'm a W-2 person now. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I haven't done that for 20 years. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> I'm excited. It's it's for an organization called Neotero, and the motto is Thriving People, Thriving Places, and it's an organization that supports indigenous storytelling as a way to protect environment, and that's what we do. Nice. I'm really excited about that. I'm excited to be part of a team yes. and a family and that there's resources to really help communities and individuals tell stories in the way that they want to. Nice. And again, it's just about bringing resources back out into the community. That's what I love. What did it take for you to say, I'm ready to jump back into a W-2? It was all kind of a mystery to me. I was... <laughs> She's like, what am I, I signing? Sure. <laughs> you know, my name was put forward. I got a call from a guy on the mountaintop in Borneo. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it felt really surreal and odd. But something about it, you know, talk about curiosity. I wanted to follow this. I wanted to understand what they saw in me and to be open to that possibility mm -hmm. sometimes when like the elder who got me into filmmaking he saw something in me and he saw that a door opened and presented that option and I said yes mm -hmm. and it felt like that in this moment too a really large door opened <laughs> and so eight interviews later Eight interviews? Eight interviews later. Wow. Yeah, that made up for all 20 years of not working for yep. anybody. Yep. <laughs> they finally invited me to join the team, and you know, I really took time to think about it and awesome. wanted to make sure that this was the best step for <laughs> not only myself, but for my family and the community, and so I said yes. Nice. And so I'm really excited. That's super awesome. Yeah. And how do you, how do you measure success at this point? Ooh, oh. Well, sometimes it's just if I wake up in the morning, that's yeah. awesome. Yep. Listen. <laughs> you know. Listen. You know. Um, things are hard sometimes these days, and so it's. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's important just to. Be grateful for waking up. Absolutely. And um, so I feel like I'm just kind of getting to back to basics in some ways. Mm -hmm. And if in this role, in this new role at Neotero, if I can help create a system mm -hmm. that will contribute to the liberation of indigenous peoples and POC peoples, then my life will have been well-lived. Nice. And my last question before we open it up to the audience, a lot of us say that we don't have the time to do this and don't have the time to do that. You seem to be someone who defies all of that. <laughs> what do you say to, what do you say to that? How do you find the time in, in the space? Oh, there, there was a while, maybe that first 10 years of Longhouse Media, people kept thinking I was a vampire. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and that goes back to self-care. I don't, yeah. I was not living in a sustainable way for a long time. Okay. And I'm moving more towards that. 
but because of those choices, I got a lot done. I got a lot done. I mean, what, what do we use our time for? Uh, my husband and I, a couple years ago, we tried this thing for a year for the first weekend of each month. We had no media whatsoever, no TV, no radio, no phones, no computers, mm. nothing. Oh my God, we got so much done. I'm that. sure. It was amazing. And so it just, I don't know, when people say they don't have time, it's, it's like, look at how you're using your time and look at how collectively we're using our time. Mm-hmm. And I think that there, we have a lot of choice. Okay. We're going to do a lightning round. Okay. Okay. Lightning round. We are going to, let's see how many questions I can, we can, we can get out. Favorite movie? Around midnight. Favorite time of day? Uh, Twilight. Interesting. (laughs) Right, she is a member. (laughs) Um, Favorite color? Midnight blue. The most inspiring thing that you get from your kids? Honesty. Your favorite gift? Love. The best thing that you've bought for under $50 in the last year? A perfectly ripe mango. Favorite flower? Gerber daisy. Favorite place you've traveled? Morocco. One thing you can't live without? My family. Three things that you would pack in a luggage to travel around the world? Chili dusted dried mangoes, my contact lenses, and rose water tonic. Favorite accessory? Earrings. The best project you've ever worked on? Is it too cheesy to say my kids? <laughs> that it really so, feels like that. <laughs> that. I'll take it. All right. I'll take it. I'll take it. Next adventure. Going to the Amazon. Wow. That's super awesome. Yeah. I think that that is all that I have. Thank you so much. Thank you. It is an honor to be able to hold space with you. Um, I'm honored by the folks that are here today um, in this live audience that people will hear and not be able to see y'all, but we're on YouTube. And so thank you all for being here. Okay. Thank you all. Appreciate you. All right. Thank you. Season three of No Blueprint is recorded in front of a live studio audience every first Tuesday at Hyena Culture in the Pioneer Square neighborhood of Seattle, Washington. To find out how you can attend the next show, follow us on social media or on our website at noblueprintpodcast.com. We hope you enjoyed the show.